We are recording today's program 11th April 2022 with Helena Krizek, whose daughter Bianca was lost to medical malpractice in the midst of organ trafficking increasingly documented to be occurring in what otherwise have been considered to be safe professional healthcare environments. Our previous conversations from 2nd January and 7th March are available at t.me slash intuitive public radio. Helena, thank you for continuing this discussion with us. We left off in our last conversation where we were talking about the autopsy. We were talking about the body being returned without the organs and without any permission for organ harvesting. And we were also talking about the events and details leading to the intubation, as well as policies and protocols that were not followed, which you mentioned you wanted to also talk about today. Yes, um, I, what I would like to uh, continue today, I would like to briefly uh, talk about uh, different things which were uh, done to my daughter as an onslaught on her body, different medications which were given to her, um, uh, and everything what had led to the intubation. So, so uh, my daughter, she um, came to emergency room with uh, just a little a slight weakness, dehydration and uh, little redness on the skin. She was kept in emergency room for about 9.5 hours. She, did, she was stable, but did, did not require any critical care. Despite all this, she was transferred to ICU. When she was next day given fentanyl for uh, no pain, she had no pain, but they still injected her with fentanyl. After her urine uh, drug screen came, came back uh, positive for opiates instead of giving an Narcan. In, uh, she was also thiamine deficient. They were never administering the thiamine as they were supposed to. They were not checking her SIVA score, but she received um, two milligrams of IV active and highest dose, uh, which was also not necessary. Then they let resident practice the placement of the central line on her without the consent, without the supervision, and without the timeout. And during this procedure, he had perforated her carotid artery. And also he had left the tip of the catheter in her right proximal atrium, despite the radiologist's um, a suggestion for partial intra, uh, retraction of this uh, catheter step. And the catheter step was left there for next 12 days until my daughter ran into cardiovascular shock, but that was way beyond uh, the brain injury. Um, she was given two units of blood that day also. They gave her blood which had about four to six hours to expiration time. Um, blood uh, has a lifespan about 42 days from the time of collection. ICU patients are never given this type of blood because the blood already has toxins in it and it's not viable. It's deoxygenated at that point. They gave her practically two units of old blood, which was had four hours to the expiration and without the consent. There was no consent. She had no consent on her record for blood transfusion. There was also no consent for admission to the hospital. That, that consent was never signed by my, my daughter, even though she was alert and oriented on the admission when she came to the hospital. 
Later on, uh, on 29, they placed the NG tube in her. My daughter had no need for NG tube. It's a nasogastric feeding tube. My daughter could eat and drink on her own. She did not need NG tube in her. Um, that day also, we, what was brought to my attention by her roommate, um, her roommate's friend, uh, that my daughter was visited by some lady of Asian descent asking my daughter apparently about organ donation. Hmm. And um, this was a friend of my daughter's roommate who asked me last year, and, and the question, the way how she asked me, I had no clue about all this. Um, she asked me, uh, did you ever find out who was that Asian lady who came to visit Bianca that day before she sustained brain injury? And I said, no, what are you talking about? What lady are you talking about? I need to know this. This is very important to me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, we came to the conclusion that she got that information from my daughter's roommate, but he never told me about this. Um, because he came to visit Bianca that day before she sustained brain injury. So she must have told him or he was there at the time when that person was visiting my daughter. Um, Well, uh, all these things, all these medications and everything led uh, to the point when at 7 p.m. on 29, uh, my daughter was on two liters oxygen. Within one hour, she required 10 liters of oxygen. Uh, When such a change happened, um, there... uh, Something must have happened, some kind of like aspiration or something must have happened that there was such a high demand for oxygen. But there is nowhere documentation in her medical record what has happened. Usually when we have a patient and something goes wrong and the patient would require, you know, such a demand of oxygen, we document what was going on. But there is nowhere, uh, you know, her medical records was also reducted. Uh, from what we know, um, the nurse had documented um, as um, they placed the NG tube, that nasogastric feeding tube in her sometimes in the late afternoon between four and five. Um, if, uh, and, and placement of such a tube can cause aspiration also, but it would cause aspiration immediately, very closely in the placement uh, time. Um, usually what is done, there is an x-ray done of such a tube, but the x-ray was not resulted until following morning. But the nurse went ahead and used this tube to administer the medication. Even though the x-ray for this tube was not resulted and there was a no order for her to use this tube. And um, she, uh, she um, administered medication which was not necessary to administer at this point if she documented that the patient um, needed 10 liters of oxygen and was uh, thrashing and was confused, thrashing in the bed and confused. How could you possibly administer medication uh, via um, a feeding tube if um, the patient is uh, thrashing in the bed and it's confused. But uh, I, you know, there is many uh, alterations in the notes. So it's very, 
you know, they they, they really work with their medical record. <laughs> so, so, so um, when you see alterations in the notes, can you say anything more about that? I'm curious well, about that part. Uh, well, what would I say that, um, you know, that... Uh, this does not make sense. You know, if you document that the patient at 8 p.m. Uh, needs uh, 10 liters of oxygen uh, suddenly within one hour uh, from two liters and uh, the patient is confused and thrashing in the bed and that at 8.06 p.m. you go and you are administering medication to the patient um, via NG tube, via nasogastric feeding tube, um, patient who is thrashing in the bed and is oxygen hungry and you are administering medication which is not even important. And, at that point. And, and there was not, as far as my understanding is, there was not anything leading up to this thrashing to explain why she was suddenly deprived of mm -hmm. oxygen and thrashing. There's nothing that they have to say about that in the notes at all. Nothing. There is no note about it. Usually what happens when, you know, when something happened to the patient and we see that at 7 p.m. patient was on two liters oxygen and then the demand changes within one hour. Um, usually we don't go immediately to 10 liters via mask mm -hmm. we can, because we can increase up to six liters on nasal cannula. And that was never done. They went immediately to the 10 liters via mask. And um, apparently at that time, well, what I think what has happened, that this nurse was giving that medication prior. She just changed the time on the administration of the medication. And that could have left, uh, you know, Bianca, that she could have aspirated. But uh, we, we go further. At, apparently at the time, a Dr. Ho comes to her and tells her that he will be intubating this patient. Um, he is not even uh, doing ABGs prior the intubation. You have to do ABGs. You have to know if you have to intubate this patient, actually. Because only ABGs will tell you if you have to intubate. And in his um, record, he documents that uh, this was an emergent intubation. Even though the nurse during the deposition says that this was an elective intubation, so does the respiratory therapist documents that this was an elective intubation. Because if you do emergent intubation, you cannot just come and tell the nurse, I will be within an hour intubating this patient. This is not the emergent intubation, as he had documented in his uh, procedure note. Uh, once you do um, emergent intubation, everything has to be done right now. It cannot wait an hour. So obviously, he is misleading in his note when he is claiming that this was an emergent intubation. And what has happened during the intubation, when we go right to the intubation, if this was the emergent intubation, as he was to claim, which is called RSI, rapid sequence intubation, you do pre-oxygenate patient first, and then you give medications. Medications like sedatives and paralytic agents. But this was reversed. 
they give medications, they give sedatives, and they give paralytic agent, and then they were ambubac her, pre-oxygenating her. And this sequence immediately leads to aspiration again. You cannot do this, you cannot reverse that sequence. That's why it called rapid sequence incubation. So they were um, uh, when they went, when we go to the drugs uh, now, uh, they give her two milligrams worset, um, which was not even documented in Doctor Ho's procedure note. He never documented. He never wrote the order for this until five days later. Even though worset is the controlled substance, and the order has to be written within uh, twenty-four hours on the controlled substances. They gave her only two milligrams of Versat, uh, which would not sedate the patient. A, a patient uh, Versat has to be calculated according to the patient's weight and has to be given 0 0.2 to 0 0.3 milligram per kilo. And she was 50 kilos, so she would have, for her to be sedated with this Versat, she would have to get somewhere between 10 to 15 milligrams to be sedated. But then, Versed would not be appropriate for this type of patient because the patient was hypotensive. And the Versed causes more hypotension, more low blood pressure and respiratory depression. This was not the appropriate medication for her at all. Even though they gave her two milligrams only, they, that probably dropped her blood pressure temporarily, but it was not the sedation medication. And the next medication, what Dr. Ho already documented in his note, was Etomidate. Etomidate, they gave her, it's a, one of the incubation medication. It's a sedation medication. She received 20 milligrams. But again, this medication has duration only 10 to 15 minutes. By 15 minutes, it's out of your body. And the third medication was rocuronium, which is the paralytic agent. Rocuronium usually we give between 0 0.6 milligram to 1 milligram. So for her weight, it would be somewhere between 30 to 50 milligrams. They gave her 50 milligrams, but th that's where the problem now starts. They gi give her a sedation is out within 15 minutes. Uh, her atomidate and the worsed wears off very quickly, but she is now paralyzed for another hour, maybe even longer because she was dehydrated. They were supposed to, uh, when you give rocuronium to somebody, you have to immediately think about sedation medication. They have to be on sedation drip. Because what uh, this uh, sedation medication, what she received, they were off very quickly. And the patient ends up to be paralyzed for another hour. And not only um, her muscles paralyzed, but, but also her uh, respiratory muscles. So she cannot protect her airway, even though she's incubated, but she cannot protect herself no more. And um, there was supposed to be ABGs, arterial blood gases, done about 30 minutes after this incubation. This was never done. Instead, 21 minutes after, they are wheeling her out of the ICU for the routine test, routine CT, uh, CT scan while she is still under paralytic agent.
And uh, we never take patients out of ICU uh, for a routine test, firstly. And such a uh, transport requires a huge team of the people. And the patients have to be always accompanied by the nurse, respiratory therapist, and physician. And the doctor, Dr. Ho, who who was intubating her, he was supposed to give the permission for this patient to be removed from the ICU into, into radiology. That was never done. It's um... So Dr. Ho is also, basically all of the professionals that you mentioned having important roles in how this happened, none yes. of them have ever been available to, to, to discuss their notes and the insufficiencies no. in their notes. And the conflicting, it sounds like there are conflicting notes and there are notes that are simply missing. So, so one of the things that comes up for me over and over again is that if in healthcare environments, the reason we consider someone a professional is mm-hmm. because they're accountable for the work that they do. That's how we know that the work is good because th- that person is accountable for that yes. work. But if our healthcare environments are, are full of circumstances where there is not accurate documentation being kept and professionals are not accountable for the decisions they make. Are these actually health care environments? I don't think so. Yes. And, you know, when I am going back to this, to have a paralyzed patient, remove her from ICU patient who is paralyzed on ventilator, and then you bring her to CT scan when she has to lie flat on that table, mm-hmm. you will aspirate. Without a question, because you have no, your muscles are paralyzed still for another hour. And the nurse who went with her was apparently her nurse. This uh, nurse Nelson, I will use her name, uh, Ginger Nelson, so people have to know. Um, And also, uh, Bianca was her only patient that night. She had only one patient whom she accompanied uh, to this uh, CT scan. And when she was asked during the deposition, so what kind of test the Bianca had done, she did not even know. She is an ICU nurse, has only one patient to take care of, and she does not know what test the patient went for. It's completely mind-blowing. All of this is shocking. <laughs> yes, completely mind-blowing. Yes. And she went there... Um, with only respiratory therapist, this nurse should have never taken open herself to remove this patient who is still paralyzed from the ICU without the permission and without the proper team to accompany this patient. So for for the nurse that only had one patient that night who, who you have not been able to follow up with in any way, um, do, do, so, so I don't understand quite enough about how nursing works in hospital environments. A nurse that only has one patient and the nurse cannot be located to, to have a discussion about, about accountable circumstances, um, the, the nurses have supervisory, um, are, are there supervisors who, who then can account for whether or not a particular nurse is available to discuss? Like, is there a, a, a chain of 
accountability in terms of the other people working in those environments in some way? There is the chain of, uh, but what was happening when I came there, I had, nobody would tell me the truth. Nobody would tell me anything to begin with. And I had no access to medical records. I did not know what happened. They just let me to figure it out for myself. There was no conversation. I have already mentioned we have had family meetings before, but the only one who was speaking was the uh, social worker. Right. Right. There, there was no conversation whatsoever. How can they you can you remind us again uh, uh, what year this was happening? This was happening at end of twenty fifteen and beginning of twenty sixteen. So that's why I keep I keep spacing on exactly when the dates were because every yes. time you answer when I ask you, I think I asked you that a few a few times previously. Um, some very intense experiences of mine happened at the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016. Every time 16. you answer that, I am shocked that yes. the things that I was experiencing was happening at that at that same time. I then my words go away. That's that's happened every single time. I'm sorry about that. No, um, no, no, no. Don't wow. be sorry because I feel with you too. I feel with you. I feel with everybody. Uh, what people have to go through in our healthcare system. What we're talking about now, and I don't want to derail us. I want to make sure to go back to where you want to be in, mm-hmm. in your notes. Um, so what happened so, to me was also medical environments completely failing to account for patient outcomes. That was part of what yes. was happening to me then too. Yes. Yeah. These things were happening way before COVID. People yes. just think that these things happen now. No, these things were happening for decades. We just did not see it. It was well hidden. We just did not see it. And and the thing is, uh, you know, uh, so after they brought Bianca down to to CT scan, um, they gave her also Lohexol, which is the contrast dye. Bianca was severely dehydrated. Mm-hmm. You never give um, this bec- uh, medication to patients who are dehydrated because they immediately will sustain the kidney injury. Right. So they gave her that. They brought uh, then they brought her back. Um, uh, 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 one hour later, but they were still not doing ABGs on her. They waited for another hour, and when they did the ABGs on her, her PO2 was only 47. As I said, she had sustained a brain injury. And uh, because regular normal PO2 is between 80 to 100, or for ICU patients somewhere above uh, 65, at that point, Dr. Ho goes and increases the PEEP, changes the partial and expiratory pressure on the ventilator. Um, her, uh, usually we start at number five and he, uh, he increases it to number 10. We, because of that PO2 of 47, we never go in such a high increments. Uh, we go 2.0 to 2.5 only and the patient has to be on uh, vasopressors because increase in PEEP means a more profound hypotension, drop in blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And she was already hypotensive due to dehydration and the other drugs they gave her. So um, he increases, but he never, um, she was not on vasopressor. That was another major, major uh, error, what, what they were doing. 
And uh, so then at the, um, when I go back at 8 p.m. when the nurse was documenting, uh, Nurse Nelson, I will use her name, Ginger Nelson, um, she was documenting that the Bianca was oriented times two to place a person. She had a clear speech. She was confused and was thrashing in the bed. Okay, then when the patient already sustained the brain injury uh, well, she, while she was in the CT scan um, between 9 and 10 p.m. and she is brought back and her PO2 is at 47, mm-hmm. at midnight, 10 minutes after midnight, this nurse does not, she is supposed to reassess the patient and document the proper uh, condition the patient is in because the patient was now unresponsive and comatose, but not comatose due to the sedation, because there was no sedation on board, but the comatose due to the brain injury. But this nurse goes ahead, she copy forward her note from 8 p.m. and is charting on the patient who was now comatose and unresponsive, is lying in her note and is saying that the patient is oriented times two, confused but thrashing in the bed and has a clear speech how could you assess the speech of the patient who is intubated and is comatose what i don't even know how to yeah sorry i get i i go i I keep going around in little circles trying to make sense of it but that's what you're doing too (laughs) yes yes that's what i am doing yeah oh my gosh this is the way how they lie in the notes well, so many people never check the notes. So many people, mm-hmm. when they try to get their medical records to get access to those notes, can't even get access to mm-hmm. their own records. So, like, yeah. to what extent? I mean, I, um, are, are you are you practicing as a nurse now, or did you previously? I practice uh, for as a nurse uh, for uh, around forty years. Uh, last time I practiced was for twenty five years in New York Presbyterian, and I took the package in twenty twenty in second half of twenty twenty. So, I do not practice nursing now. So there are, there are so many questions that I want to ask about, like the situations that medical professionals are in on a day to day basis. People who are striving to do their work most honorably, to care for patients most honorably, um, yes. are often also still put into positions where they they can be blamed for things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can do everything right and you can still end up in, in a situation that's really terrible. And then at the same time, if we if we're if we're never going to have real communications about the, the documentation that's being kept in medical environments that I mean, if professionals like I know many, many nurses, many kinds of health professionals want to take better documentation, want to spend more time with their patients and they're they're kept from doing it in different ways but when this sort of thing happens and we have really serious accountability situations which of course all across the healthcare landscape we see this now where we maybe did not see it before although of course many people did see that it was Mm -hmm. going on before it's it's really shocking uh, I am sorry. Uh, you know, I would see the things happening throughout. Uh, you know, I was uh, always uh, practice what I was taught. I always went by what I was. I, I was following whatever I was taught in the school. 
And you have to, if you want to be uh, good to your patient and you want to be safe for your patient, you have to follow what you were taught in school. Because sometimes even hospital policies are not that great as mm-hmm. what you were taught in school should be your Bible. And you should always follow that. As a nurse and as a physician too. That goes to physicians too. And so many are not even following what they learned in school. We, we, we have some conversations about, like, there, it, it's clear that in certain cases, medical professionals are being miseducated about certain things. Mm-hmm. But, but That's in, true, too. in medical professions, what we see all over the place is people don't even follow the, the crucial stuff that they had learned in those environments. And, and it, 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 we ask questions about why about whether mm-hmm. it was not possible for them to do what they should have done or whether they were taking advantage of a situation where they could benefit but, in some way. You know, I am also looking, it's also patient, uh, it's also um, a professional's integrity. Because when I am looking at this documentation of this nurse, so at 8 p.m. you document the patient was oriented times two, clear speech, confused, thrashing in the bed. Yes, I understand that. That could be true. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, meanwhile, in those four hours, the patient sustained a brain injury, and you, instead of documenting, uh, documenting now the proper patient condition, what the condition patient is now in, mm-hmm. that the patient is comatose due to this brain injury, and uh, the patient, you cannot assess the patient's uh, speech. Uh, documenting that the patient has a clear speech, it does not even make sense. You making fool out of yourself because you cannot assess the speech on the patient who is intubated and comatose. You know, this is also people's integrity. Yeah. To lie. You're lying, actually. Well, also, I mean, if I am in a professional role, I want to be available to be accountable for the work I'm doing. I want that. If somebody is harmed and I was there at that time, I want to be part of that conversation. My whole body wants to be part of that conversation. I do not want people to be harmed by my work. So what could possibly be happening in these situations? So, so, so when, uh, when I go further in that record, this nurse le- leaves uh, work at 3 a.m. and another nurse comes on the duty. And another nurse, she is now documenting uh, at 4 a.m. her assessment, and she already documented, yeah, I, ca- I am unable to assess the speech of this patient. Mm-hmm. Patient is in the coma. Patient is unresponsive. So now when we go to the coma, coma can be caused only by two things, either by sedation and there was no sedation running on the patient. That has to be talking about sedation trip. There was no sedation. Or by the uh, brain injury. Yes, she sustained a brain injury because she had a PO2 of only uh, 47 due to hypoxia. Then was the MRI was done on Bianca on the 1st of uh, January, which confirm the post-anoxic leukoencephalopathy. Post-anoxic mean uh, some kind of uh, oxygen um, deprivation. 
there was oxygen deprivation and that happened when they removed her and took her to the city when she came back and her PO2 was only 47. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I look at her record, everything what was done to her throughout the day, all this medication, everything is bringing me to the top. It's like somebody wanted to do something. Somebody wanted her to have this low blood pressure. Somebody was guiding the direction there. Because it's not possible for people to make so many mistakes on one patient in one day. It's not possible. One mistake maybe, but not so many. I sort of find myself wanting to ask if if guiding the person towards low blood pressure has particular benefits for organ harvesting. Uh, it, that's what that's what I've been thinking. You know, you have to bring somehow these uh, people from point A to point B. That's the way how I call it. Mm-hmm. And you know, if I will be giving the patient fentanyl and patient has no pain, why am I giving fentanyl to somebody who would profit from Narcan uh, when uh, this patient's urine drug test come positive for opiates? I would give him Narcan to this patient uh, to reverse that, not giving them more medication which is, will bring them down further which will drop the blood pressure further. And the same with the antivan, giving antivan two milligram to the patient who is dehydrated and already has uh, elevated opiates in the urine, I would, that's, that's a catastrophe. Yeah. That's like you're doing this intentionally. I, to me, I see the intent. In this, I see intent. And the nurse who was deposed about this, when she was asked about those two medications, why she gave them, she had no answer. And we talked about this before, I believe, in our previous interview. Um, when she was asked by my attorney, why did you give this fentanyl and when, why did you give this Ativan, her response was, I don't know. She does not know. The following day, um, uh, they put Bianca on the Presidex drip. And uh, also, she was not even given vasopressors. For two and a half hours, the Presidex brought her blood pressure down completely like 60 for systolic and uh, something, 60 over something, um, there was practically very low diastolic uh, blood pressure, 60 over something, we call it. And uh, they, were, they left let her to uh, without any intervention in ICU setting for 2.5 hours like that. It, this was already after she sustained a brain injury, but how could you do something like that? The whole environment, I mean, for something like this to be allowed to happen, like that would have to be examined so closely to know that anybody else would be safe in that environment. You cannot be safe. This is not a safe environment. This is a criminal environment. To me, this is criminal. Have you been in contact with others who experienced failures of that system in that location in in Hawaii? No, no. I had not... uh, uh, 
been in contact. I have seen some other lawsuits mm-hmm. which were uh, pursued against the uh, other hospital there. And, um, you know, uh, it was more lawsuits, uh, d- different lawsuits, but I have not uh, been in contact with any other parties who sue personally. And many people don't know how to even start something like that. And people are so changed by traumatic experiences that they may never be able to bring it up. They may never be able to call for accountability about it. Yes. You know, there was also, um, I've been counting different uh, sedation which were given to my daughter. So from uh, one night, um, uh, one 24-hour period, I was counting, for example, this verset, midazolam, uh, which is was used with the COVID patients also now, which is uh, midazolam and lorazepam. They used those two and those really killed these people. They were giving my daughter... Um, um, acceptable dose for her weight for 24-hour period would be 360 milligrams. She was receiving almost 600 milligrams. That's a almost double dose. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is the way how it is. This is this is the reality. And about a week before she died, she sustained the MI, myocardial infarction. She had, a, I, I spoke about it before, fracture to her fourth right posterior rib, mm-hmm. which we don't know how she got that. Right. This is, to me, this something like that happens only from some blunt trauma. Uh, there was a chief of ICU um, who um, came, uh, I saw him only three or four times in the whole time I was there with my daughter for about five, six weeks. I was with her and uh, I saw him only three, four times. He came first night when I came. I asked him to give me a written account of what has happened to my daughter. That has never happened. Mm -hmm. He uh, he promised me in three days he will have it for me. That has never happened. He came about a week before my daughter died. And he walks in, it was on the weekend, and he says, so, are you ready now to take your daughter back to New York with you? I didn't know what to say. To me, this is a psychopathic behavior. And uh, then he walks out and he brings me the printout from the computer printout about rat lung worm disease. Lung worm disease? Rat, rat, you know, like a rat. Rats? Oh, rats, yeah, yeah. lungworm disease. Lungworm disease, okay. Uh-huh. And he's pushing this pamphlet on me, and he says, you know, your daughter has this. Yes, yes. Okay. I go to his uh, record uh, after I finally received the records, which was also the difficulty, and he actually documented this in his medical charting. He actually documented this in his medical charting. So, um, you know, after my daughter died on February 5th, um, I was there in Hawaii because uh, I was planning for the funeral. And on February, I'm going to now talk a little bit about coroner, Dr. Happy. Um, So, um, 
on February 19, it was on Friday, and um, I was received a phone call from uh, a lady named Pamela Cadiente, who was uh, the assistant to Dr. Happy, medical examiner of Honolulu, the medical examiner of Honolulu. And um, she, so I was returning the call. It was on Friday afternoon, but she was out of the office. So on Monday, there was Bianca's funeral. And after the funeral, I told my ex-husband, I have to call this lady. I don't know what she wants from me. So I called her and uh, Miss Cadiente told me, you know, Dr. Happy is ready uh, to sign the death certificate, Bianca's death certificate, but he has a couple questions from you. When did her um, ankle injury happen and was there ever any pin, you know, those uh, hardware placed in and so i told her an injury happened in 2012 while she was walking in high heels and according to bianca there was a hardware placed and then she was quiet for a minute and then she tells me you know um your daughter was very ill I said, what do you mean by very ill? Well, the hospital sent us the message here that she was brought in comatose. I said, what are you talking about? That would make me a first nurse who is able to communicate with the comatose people because I spoke to her while she was in emergency room. We had a conversation. And the conversation is actually documented by the social worker in her medical record. So my daughter is, was oh oh i'm sorry please finish my daughter was fully oriented when she entered the hospital right and and the hospital told the coroner's office that she was brought in comatose so the coroner came to you after all of this and said this is what we were wow mhm mm wow so, so they were lying to the coroner's office. Um, but then again, um, so, so Miss Cadiente said, you are not able to um, have your uh, death certificate today. Um, I, uh, the, we will have to repossess all the medical records and slides and uh, labs from the uh, Queen's Medical Center. Well, it took for me to get to to get the death certificate almost two years. Bianca died in February of 2016, and I did not receive the death certificate until the fall of 2017. And the primary cause on her death certificate is the fall uh, ankle injury, uh, which happened in 2012, was the oh. cause of her death in 2015. The that uh, is this common? Does this happen a lot? This kind of I don't know. I have never, uh, never seen uh, such a, such a thing. It does not make sense to me. And there were secondary causes on the death. Uh, primary cause of the death was the ankle injury, uh, which happened uh, in twenty twelve, while she was walking in high heels. Was cause of her death in twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen actually. And uh, secondary causes were acquired iatrogenic diagnosis, which she acquired while she was in the ICU. 
I have requested also toxicology report from this coroner. Uh, but what has happened, I requested this report sometimes in January 2017. I have never got it. I spoke to a person named Mary who work with coroner's office and um, she promised me but she told me uh, we had to send it to the mainland to do the toxicology i could not understand why hawaii is not able to perform the toxicology why they would have to send it to the mainland it did not make sense to me I have never received toxicology report, uh, but what has happened, I don't know what kind of connection these people have, but uh, later on when I was with my attorney, I was submitting uh, different documents to him and I was submitting different uh, phone calls. So I needed itemized bills for different phone calls I have had with uh, medical examiner's office. And I have requested from T-Mobile itemized bill uh, for January 2017, and the phone call was not there on my itemized bill. It wasn't on your phone bill? I almost froze. I said, I know I have made this phone call. I spoke to this woman named Mary, who promised me toxicology report and even told me that they will give it to me once they receive the results from the mainland. So when we went to the deposition with Dr. Happy, my attorney was very smart about it. He went and he requested their itemized bill. And the phone call was on their itemized bill, but it was removed from my itemized bill by my provider, my phone provider, T-Mobile. Your phone provider without any other connection... To, why mm-hmm. would something be removed from your phone bill? It's not on my phone bill. That's, I am not not joking. It's not on wild. my phone bill, but it's on their phone bill. But well, see, I, this is another. We're we're hitting another place that that gets very hard for me to express things because what yeah. we have been looking at. Um, oh, and I see we're coming up on the hour. Wow. Um, <laughs> how do we how how do we sort of reflect on all of this near the end of, of this call and I hope we can get on the line again soon. Um, what what I keep what I keep coming up against and and what others in our groups are coming up against over and over is that services and systems that we have have thought to be separate are actually mm-hmm. connected in some concerning ways and that's the yes. mildest way for me to say yeah. it so for so so when you say that a, a key piece of information about mm-hmm. your follow-ups on your daughter's death disappears from your phone records yes which should from be completely separate from all yes, of this yes 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 it um, was not there, but uh, my attorney was smart about it. He requested their itemized bill, and it showed on their itemized bill this particular phone phone call was removed. The others were there, but this particular phone call was removed. So you have direct, you have um, concrete evidence of it having been removed from your phone bill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. But it was it was on their phone bill, documented. Right. They didn't remove mm-hmm. it from their phone bill. They just removed it from your phone bill. Yes. I don't know what type of connection these people have, but uh, after the deposition, the medical examiner was let go. 
Um, if somebody wants to see, there is a video on YouTube about uh, Dr. Christopher Happy. It's d- done by the news. When he left, he left uh, about 900 autopsies unfinished. Wow. wow. I have received uh, two messages from the whistleblower who was warning me that Dr. Happy is the heavy drug abuser. He does cocaine and oxycodone. There, there is also an article um, on on um, on uh, you, uh, not YouTube on the internet that Honolulu police was apparently monitoring a medical examiner for his drug abuse. And we have to realize that this is a person who was ha- had the highest position, highest pay position from taxpayers' money yeah. in Honolulu. Uh, this um, uh, apparently after the deposition we, we have done with him, uh, uh, he resigned. Um, he resigned uh, this position on October 17, and he left uh, in two weeks. Nobody resigned such an important position, and uh, and go, uh, you know usually people resign position. Even nurses, we have to give like one two months notice before we want to resign the position. And this is a D medical examiner of Honolulu. And he resigned his position like that so quickly. And apparently the city, according to this YouTube video, was ready to investigate him. But he resigned. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. To me, um, to me how I understand it, he would probably bring many people down with him That's what I was if he thinking. was to speak. That's the way how I understand it. People can say maybe I'm uh, I'm not making up the story. I, I know my stuff. I know my stuff. And then there is an article when there was a um, death of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. There was a journalist who wrote the article. And she picked three medical examiners within the country to give some kind of evaluation on the death of George Floyd. And guess who was one of those um, medical examiners? Dr. Happy. Really? Yes. So I have wrote her, I have sent her a message. You know, there was her name below and uh, I think there was an email. I have sent her a message. Do you know this person? Yeah. Do you know that this person is a defendant in the lawsuit, that this person is the drug abuser? This person was let go from his job, from his position. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about this person? I have never got a response back from her, of course. Right. <laughs> Who would? <laughs> this is like an organized crime. Yes, and it has a lot of particular elements that we have learned to associate with organized mm-hmm. crime. Um, people, uh, people who resign from their jobs after, after, after perpetuating something weird, um, mm-hmm. in a way that suggests that, that either other people who, who are, who are maybe more powerful and less visible can yes. benefit from this person either going down 
for certain crimes or just being taken out of the picture so that they won't yes. they won't talk mm-hmm. to anybody. We see that a lot. We've we've been noticing that in circumstances of of this um, whole COVID situation, which I know we will talk more about. Um, you know what I wanted to also um, very quickly also mention that when I have filed this lawsuit, mm-hmm. like few months apart from this, who resigned was the CEO of the hospital I am suing was the CEO of uh, Legacy of Life, which is the organ donation place in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and also director of Department of Health, uh, Virginia Pressler. She resigned also. All three resigned around the time I filed this lawsuit. The information yeah. that you have gathered together is, it, it's amazing that you have gotten all of these details at least to where you can talk about them. So many people never get to that place that I have so much respect for that, for what that takes. I don't, I will not let them go. I will not let them go because I truly believe what has happened to my daughter uh, from it. It's a reflex that medical record tells the story. Yes. And because I understand that, uh, how to read it. It tells me the story that my daughter was medically kidnapped, profiled, and murdered. And nobody, nobody can change my mind about this. Certainly nobody that refuses to have the conversation with you. Yes, nobody can change my mind because this is what has happened. It's there, it's in that record. Even though this record was partially redacted and altered, it's still there. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a lot more that you haven't even mentioned yet. This is our third, yes. this is our third conversation. I think we, we, we were on the line, it was like an hour, an hour and a half the first time. And then we did an hour last time. And then we're going we're, we're, we're gonna to keep it about an hour this time yes. and going forward. But that's, I mean, this is a huge amount of information that many people um, encounter circumstances where this stuff is relevant, but people's brains can't necessarily hang on to all of those details. And the environments where where this sort of thing is being perpetuated, mm-hmm. the violence that occurs relies upon people's brains not being able to hold enough of the details at once to figure out where it's coming from or what happened. You know, I've been reading now, uh, there was a, actually a lawsuit filed by the attorney named Todd Callender. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have heard about him. He is uh, filing class action lawsuit against uh, everything what was done this um, um, people, these COVID patients and everything and vaccinations and everything. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about how these people are really being murdered in the hospitals with high doses of this uh, Versat and yes. uh, uh, lorazepam. My, uh, Versat is midazolam and uh, also active and lorazepam, high doses. That, and he's an attorney. He knows what he's talking about. He's not just saying this for fun. This is This is real. Yes. And we have quite a few other instances of people taking taking legal action and saying this is really clear information. This, this must is not clear. be allowed to continue. And mm-hmm. and um, we feel a, a sense of strength and relief every time we notice that somebody's doing that. I haven't looked very closely at what Todd Callender has been doing, but I'm going to take a closer look at it 
after we get off the line, definitely. Yes, Todd Calendar, yes, that's his name. And he really, um, he really is talking. Yeah, I was very impressed. Could we spend a few minutes um, thinking about um, what Bianca might like to bring into our conversation? But she would want it. You know, Bianca, she liked people. She was a people person. She was a she, she was very kind and she was very human. You know, I don't think Bianca would ever be a fighter as I am. She was very human. She would just accept whatever. I don't know how to put it. She was very human, very kind. I don't know. And that's why, you know, some of us are more fighters and some of us, but we have to fight for these people. The people who cannot fight for themselves, who don't have that strength. Not all of us, we have that strength. We have to fight these people and we have to protect them. Some people are here and they resonate in ways that really make an impact on the people who are around them. When you talk about Bianca, I, I, I feel like I sense some of that. Um, and looking at her pictures and, and just getting to know a little bit, a little bit more about her from, from things that you've said. Yes. Um, it, it is so important that we fight for one another. It's so important that we honor the resonance that, that a person brings into the world with them we don't we don't we don't just let violence go we don't just let it go if something terrible that should not have happened happens we, yeah we, we cannot, it. as you said it we cannot let the people perish because we we are, who we who are stronger we have to fight for them we have to protect them and that's very important very important this was always important to me as a nurse to protect my patients and uh, if I am stronger than somebody else yes I will do it I will protect that person I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for Bianca and I, I'm really grateful to you for, for bringing this conversation to us the way you've been And I think that the more the more all of us actually have an opportunity to sit with this, to 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 think about the the loved ones that we've lost, and and to think about the people who are being subjected to to these kinds of circumstances all the time that we never hear from. There's so much that individuals can do. Just you mm -hmm. and I having this conversation is such a powerful thing. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be part of that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I would, yeah. I would love to plan to talk again soon. Um, I, I, any, any other reflections that you may have before we wrap up, I would love to know. What, what I want to say I will always fight this I will always fight these people I'm not going to let them go as I told my lawyers they're not going to go they touch the most important person in my life 
<laughs> they're not gonna just go that easy. Yes, we're we're here in it with you for sure. We intend to continue these conversations so that we can all sort out what needs to be sorted out. There is a lot that has to be sorted out. Thank you very much for doing this for me, for letting this to go public, because we educating people also as we talk about these things. And the people can learn different aspects of what is being done to the patients. Because some people cannot understand, because when they look at the record, it does not tell them anything. Or they don't have your nursing experience so that they would be able to recognize what to look for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and just, I mean, having the conversation more so that more people can access it, it helps more people be able to think in these ways when it can be so challenging to, to think through all of the details. But we get better at it the more we're sharing it with one another. Yes. Yeah, I want to for Bianca to know that I will always fight for this. I will never let this go. As long as I live, I will fight this. I'm glad that there are more and more of us who feel we have to say that. There there are elements of this that I, I there's no way that I could let it go. When, mm-hmm. when people I care about um, are being marketed to so that they will trust healthcare environments that are continuously sacrificing safety and respect and dignity of themselves, yes. of the people they say that they serve. I mean, what, what, I, I don't, I don't, what am I here on this planet for if I'm going to ignore that? It doesn't yes. make any sense to me to ignore that. No, we have to uh, help each other and assist uh, each other with these things and pro- uh, be protected. Um, at this point, I truly feel as me as a person, I would be afraid to go to the hospital. A lot of After people feel that way what now. was done to my doctor, yeah. I am afraid now. Yeah, I am truly afraid. I would maybe hire a private nurse, but I would be afraid to go to the hospital now. When I go through the record, I am scared. A lot of people are cut off mm-hmm. from any kind of health care for exactly that reason. Because they've seen what happens and that no one addresses it. And it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like there are things that have happened in my communities where I was looking for the helpers. I was looking for the fighters. Where are the people who would recognize this and do something about it and found them totally missing? Couldn't find them anywhere. And then yes. when we have gradually um, just one at a time, we find one one person and then a while later, then maybe another person. And, and, you know, all of us distinguishing ourselves because we're not willing to let this slide. Because we cannot, because that's our, that's our survival. Our families and our yes. communities, that's our survival. Um, and that, that lightens me, that strengthens me, the more we find each other. But wow, finding each other has been very hard for a long time. Yes. You know, I also, there was one more thing I wanted to mention. Sure. Um, there is lots of, uh, um, you know, conflict of interest, what I have found, especially in my daughter's case also. You know, uh, for example, medical examiner, you know, this Dr. Happy was sitting on the Legacy of Life board, which is organ donation place. Hmm. 
And there was also one of the neurologists from uh, Queen's Medical Center where my daughter perished sitting on the same board, on the Legacy of Life board. It, uh, then department uh, chief of ICU was sit- um, sitting on the bo- once of the board of Department of Health. You yeah. know, there is such a, um, it's like organized crime. Yeah. <laughs> there is such a heavy conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost unreal. But the public does not know those things unless you start investigating these things. Right. Unless we're holding a consistent enough conversation that, that mm-hmm. it becomes more clear to all of us what needs to happen, what, what has actually been happening. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we trust these different organizations, like uh, the Department of Health. I always thought they work for the people, but that's not true. That's I have learned that this is not true, actually. Right. Part, part of what's happening for me is that um, in conversations like this with you and with others, we're developing a whole new improved concept of professional integrity how do we want our professionals to behave what does being a professional mean yes and that's really important that's really strengthening for me too Mm -hmm. and also you know when you look at the patient care services within the hospitals they don't i always as a nurse all these years i thought that they work for the patients and for the family I was so naive. I believed in that stuff. <laughs> no, they don't. They are there actually protecting the hospital interest, protecting them from the lawsuits yeah. and covering up the hospital errors. That's all what they are doing. They are not working for the patient and their family. No, I was naive. I was very, very naive all these years because I believe in good in the people. <laughs> sometimes you learn hard way yeah I am really looking forward to experiencing what is the new healthcare what is the healthcare that we organize with and for one another that is really based in honorable accountable behavior what is that because we're going to have to find out what it is we, we will have, have to, to. Yes. 